This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today, I'm joined by Keone Gandel, who's a researcher and proud biohacker in the ND Lab at Stanford University. I met Keone while working on the FreeGenes project, and to say that he's a passionate bioengineer would be a huge understatement. So Keone, maybe you can start by introducing yourself and telling us about the problems that you're trying to solve at Stanford. All right, hi, I'm Keone. I work at the ND Lab at Stanford University, and what I'm really interested in is biotechnology and fundamentally democracy. Going through high school, building DNA and working in labs, I've observed that there are certain inequalities in how the technology is being developed of bioengineering right now. On a more global scale, if you look at big pharma or large pharmaceutical companies or large agricultural companies, you'll see that they tend to consolidate into a few large major corporations. We also saw something quite similar at the early days of computers with IBM and Microsoft and the like, and even nowadays with Facebook and Apple and so forth. We see this trajectory over time in many different fields, and there are a lot of problems with it. One major problem that we see is that the corporatization of living matter, for example, with Monsanto, leads to a huge fear over science, a fear of technological development because some corporation owns it. So the corporations can translate kind of anti-corporatism into anti-science, and I think that's a problem. Biology is beautiful and great because it's one of the few technologies that's really, really good at making more of itself. And so in the coming decades, in the coming century, we have a really great opportunity on this planet to make biotechnology equitable and something that everybody has access to, regardless of socioeconomic position. And hopefully, if we make technology accessible to everyone, far fewer people will fear it, far more people will take advantage and make their lives better using it. So my overall goal is to increase equity in bioengineering by making a large library of free and open source genetic parts and then distributing those to lots of people. And so that's what I'm doing with free genes. Wow, that is awesome. So when you say inequality and making things equitable, I'm sensing that you mean with respect to access to data and then technology to, you know, manipulate that data. Could you talk a little bit about the differences in incentives between, for example, a big corporation and then someone like yourself? In a future where things are more equitable, what kind of changes do you see? How about this? How about instead of a farmer buying their seeds from Monsanto every year. We have small farmers that can produce any seed that they would want, a BT toxin-producing corn or Roundup-resistant corn, Roundup-resistant anything, really, for their own local strains. What if they could easily sell those to their neighbors? What if we made it so that any medicine, any off-patent medicine, any generic, could be made anywhere for a couple of dollars? What if we could build vaccine plants in the countries where they actually need those vaccines? What if we could build industrial products at home? What if you could grow a house or grow a boot? Hopefully things that enable people to do fun things with science and awesome things with science will come about without simply the incentive for money. I kind of see it as a parallel to what happened in computer science in which writing the code for GNU 
or those toolkits and spreading it as open source has really enabled the field to produce a lot of great things and for a lot of people to run their own things and have the freedom to get away from corporations who wish to control them through software. The differences in what will happen in my ideal world would be a companies and individuals will work together. Companies won't oppress individuals and force their will upon them. What can we do in the biological age or the biological revolution to make sure that people have optionality to the means of production? I happen to know that you sort of started as any hacker would kind of in your garage at home. Can you tell us about how you got interested first in biology and how you stumbled into it? Were you inspired by friends or family or did you read something and say, hey, I think I'm going to try doing this in my garage? Back in sixth grade, I was roaming around it church book fair, the local Catholic church. And I found this virology textbook in the used book section. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. Viruses are really cool. They're really neat. So I bought the book. It was about $5. And I went home and I read the first chapter and I understood very little of it, but it seemed really, really cool. These little micro machines were able to infect cells and then produce more of those cells. How did they do it? So I took a, about a month or so rereading the first chapter to really get it. And by that time, I was really pumped up about biology. I was like, wow, viruses are really cool. And so I took an AP biology class in the summer of sixth grade to seventh grade to solidify my understanding of how molecular biology worked. And I only did the molecular biology section and didn't do any of the rest, so I didn't pass the class. But regardless, my seventh grade science teacher noticed that I was super into bio. And so he was like, Keone, you seem really into this stuff. Would you like to do a bacterial transformation? If you buy it here, you can ship it to my classroom. And so I was like, wow, that sounds super cool. Yes, I do. And so I did the simple bacterial transformation at home. Nowadays, you can buy a kit for it for about $30 and send it directly to your house. But that wasn't as it was back then. And after that, I decided to just keep hacking away at my house and build some cool genetic constructs. And that's eventually what led me to where I am now, kind of incorporating things I learned about computers and things that I learned about bio. Wow. So we need to give a huge shout out to that teacher that's inspired you to go over this particular level of interest that you then decided to go all the way. Tell me about your thinking when you decided to actually move away from home, move to the Bay Area and start working at Stanford University. Yeah. So rewind the clock a little. This is 2016. There's the first biohacking conference, Biohack the Planet going on. And I was meeting a lot of old friends, people that I knew for quite a few years. So me as a little teenager and all of them as the 20-something year olds that I had known for about three or four years at the time talking to online, but they never knew my age. So that was super fun. And I had just decided the week before to go to it. So I convinced my mom that we should drive up because it was near Stanford and she really wanted me to go to a really good school. I see that there are open slots for talks. So I asked Josiah, a friend of mine, and also the person who runs the Odin uh, and running the conference, hey, can I take that spot? And he was like, sure, go for it, kid. And it was a couple hours away. So I whipped up a presentation about what I was doing at the time and presented it. And it just so happened that the presentation was just before Drew Endes, who is the PI I work under. And in my talk, I brought up my major ideas that I had been developing at that time, which was one of the greatest challenges of synthetic biology is building full cells, building life from scratch. And how do we build life from scratch? How do we make a buildable genome? I thought we needed basically three things. 
we needed to get really good at building DNA for really cheap. We needed a free and open source repository of DNA parts to share all of our discoveries and share our, the things that we built in a very efficient way. And we finally need software to integrate all that so that we can work well together. So I kind of presented that idea and it turns out that Drew had some similar ideas. His presentation was on the BioNet, which is a peer-to-peer -peer network of biological materials to be transferred around, which is very similar to the idea that I had. And apparently at the time, he was also working on a project called Build-A-Cell. And so I touched on two major things going on in his lab. And so after his presentation, he came up to me and said, wow, Keone, your presentation was super cool. We should stay in touch. And I was like, great, because I really wanted to go to Stanford at the time. So later that year, I applied to Stanford University and I had asked Drew to write me a recommendation letter. So he did. And it turns out they really do check grades. So I did not get into Stanford. I didn't actually get into the majority of places I had applied to. So Drew was like, you should come work for me anyway. And so that's, that's what I did. A lot of our listeners probably aren't familiar what bioengineering work looks like because it's a combination of wet and dry lab work. And you've mentioned a few times now software, but you've also mentioned an open source database of materials. You have actual things in the lab. Could you kind of talk about the different components of wet and dry and how they come together and how software is involved? Yeah, so one common way to think about DNA is that DNA is just data because you can computerize it as A, T, G, and C, and then send it around on a network and do bioinformatics and stuff. But DNA also is a real world object. It physically exists. And to make things more complicated, it changes over time and actually does things. Those properties make DNA really interesting from an engineer's perspective because you can modify or make sequences on a computer and then build them in real life and test them on how they work in real life. And so kind of the goal of a bioengineer is to get really good at building DNA on a computer and then having that do something that you want it to do in the real world. So for example, you could design on a computer DNA for the Bt toxin to be expressed in plants and synthesize that from scratch and then put it into a plant and you now have a plant that is resistant to getting eaten by pests. And so kind of the daily work of a bioengineer would be designing DNA on a computer and then synthesizing it and going through all the lab processes of taking synthesized DNA and then putting it into cells and then having those cells do something with that DNA. So for example, you would put DNA into a bacteria that could put it into a plant to express the Bt toxin. So the interface between the software world and the wetware world can be defined as like just a DNA string that you want to get good at modifying. The other aspect of laboratory automation, other than just designing DNA on a computer, is working with robots. And so I write a lot of robot code for robots to basically do all the things that I normally do in lab for me because I'm lazy. Those are the two things that you would use software for in a laboratory environment. Oh my gosh. So tell me, I actually had another question, but first tell me more about the robots. Ah, I'll nerd you out with some details. We use robots called the OpenTrans robots. Our lab was a early Kickstarter funder for that company, which is now a much larger. So they have these OpenTrons robots. We have three of them in lab, plus one extra in case any one of ours goes down. And so we can kind of allocate the robots to do things. One of the things that we might want to do is prepare some DNA to get shipped out. And so we will have a number of plates 
that we would want to send to someone. And so the robots will take from our longtime archive stocks the plasmids that are necessary to ship to them. They will take them out of those old plates, grow them up, reallocate them into several more plates for shipping to other people or making copies for us to stock ourselves. And then we would just put things on the deck. So we put like some bacteria and we put some plates and then it does all that for us. And then we just take it off the deck and ship it out to people. And so the robots are super cool. You can write software for them in Python and their Python API is super simple. And you can also write code for them in JSON and their JSON API is super simple. Turns out that nearly nobody uses the REST API because you're talking to a bunch of biologists and they don't know what JSON is. They're probably thinking for the future, there will be a time when it's integrated with other things in the lab, but it's, we're just not there yet. What are some ways that someone who's interested in just learning and growing can become involved in the community? Depends what you're really interested in. There are several different axes that you can go with biological programming. One of the things that I've been doing lately is more on the bioinformatics side. You can download all of the reference genomes ever sequenced. And you could say, okay, let's find what genes are conserved across all of those or what genes are conserved across some of those. Or we could take a pathway for some production of some enzyme. For example, we could take THC synthesis and you can say, okay, what genes are necessary to build that and which organisms have those genes available. So you could search across the entire space of all of genomes and like figure out which organisms have which precursor genes that you would then add like a few other genes onto to be able to produce some rare molecule. Another thing that you could do is get down into lab. You can order $30 kits to genetically modify organisms. You can buy a $150 kit that will let you brew your own beer brew your own genetically modified beer. And that can be quite fun. There are DNA part collections. So you start doing DNA design. You figure out, well, what parts can you put together to do some interesting genetic function? Maybe you just want to make beer glow. Maybe you want to make plants glow. Maybe you want to make glowing plants. The world's your oyster. The main problem that I see in biotech is that there are not many people who are both good at biology and computers, which makes it kind of harder to communicate. There aren't that many really useful things you can do if you don't have understanding of what is actually needed in either one of the fields. For example, I see computer scientists who try to make software for biology, but don't actually solve really any problem that biologists have because they don't know biology itself. Or we, I see biologists who try to make computer programs that don't really work at all and don't work over the long term at all because they don't know how to engineer computers. And so my suggestion would be to become both a biologist and a software engineer. And by just working in a lab, you will find things that can be improved with software. Huh. That seems like a lot to take on in many domains of research. The thinking is, well, you need the support of a research software engineer because it's really hard to be a software engineer and be an expert in your domain. But what you're saying is, no, you actually need to be an expert in your domain and a software engineer. So. What is a reasonable way for a human being to do that other than taking on an exorbitant amount of training and multiple PhDs or years in school? Or is that the only way? Oh, I see what you mean. My suggestions for biologists and kind of computer scientists would differ. If you're a computer scientist, like an RSC, finding a good biology lab that has well-defined tasks that they need to get done 
is a good way to get an introduction to what's going on in the field, what are needs that have already been found, and applying yourself to those. Kind of the suggestions that I was making was more pointed towards the high schooler that, you know, doesn't really know what they want to do, but is kind of intellectually curious enough and has the time to go explore more. It's really hard to answer the question of, well, what do you do? Because if I knew all the greatest things to do, I would try and get people on them. There are a lot of problems in the field that remain unsolved. It's a very hard question, and I think a lot of domains of science are sort of facing it. And I don't have a good answer either, although I'd say that what you've suggested in terms of having people with expertise that sort of spans both areas that know how to identify meaningful problems and having them working together will help everyone grow. It would be a huge burden to say, oh, you want to be great at bioengineering? Well, you just need a PhD in both and uh, see you in 12 years. <laughs> yep. I think that like minimal understanding of both is, is nice. Because like I see biologists who have never software engineered in their life, they don't know what is possible. And software engineers not knowing where biology is limited. And so just dabbling in both, at least, I think is suggestion worthy. That's good advice. I think one of the appealing things for a young person or actually someone of any age is just the idea of being a biohacker is really, really cool. But one thing we've talked about before is how this role can really be improperly portrayed in the media. Do you want to talk a little bit about how the media portrays biohacking, what it really is, and how you hope the perception will change over time? Yeah. So how does the media portray biohack? Over kind of a shortish time period, the media perception has changed a little, especially with the documentary Unnatural Selection on Netflix. But it's still kind of these grungy hackers doing, anarchists doing their own thing in their own labs, building like cool things that academics would never be able to do. And what it really is right now is a large majority of people talking about things and very few actually doing anything because it turns out it's really hard to do biology. It's kind of the, the nihilist take on how the field is right now. And in the media, previously, they've been quite harsh, you know, very fearful of biotechnology. It's like, oh, it's going to make the next big apocalyptic virus, which I don't think is true at all. There's more people who want to build things than destroy things. And the media doesn't understand how hard it is to do a lot of this research. My hope is that eventually it will become true, that is, you can do real things and real meaningfully impactful work by yourself just at a computer terminal or at a small benchtop kitchen laboratory. And I think that once people have access to the tools, there will be not really a switch, but it will be polarizing because there are people who will be fearful of the technology and there are people who will embrace it. And once the technology becomes widely spread enough, it kind of won't matter what the naysayers have to say because nobody will listen to them. Very similar to a lot of the previous technologies of like, oh, wow, we have cheap paper for books. It's going to corrupt everybody's morals and society will die back in the 1800s. And I think it's going to sort of go like that. Eventually, nobody is going to care about all the ethical questions that we have going on right now. The media will be drowned out by efficiencies in technology. Do you think that polarization and sort of cultural aspects are some of the greatest challenges moving forward or something else? I think it's something else because the greatest thing about people is that you can ignore them. It's this wonderful thing that a lot of people tend not to do, but you could just ignore other people. And eventually the results of the work will show for themselves that it is a good thing to go forward on. 
And to be fair, when I say ignore people, I'm not advocating for a dictatorship or a destruction of traditional democracy slash republics. It's just an aspect that there are a lot of haters and they tend to be very loud. There will be a time in which biotechnology becomes more regulated. The question is how much and what can we do about that? And in my opinion, the best thing you can do to prevent lots of regulations, which by the way, help large corporations more than they help small businesses, is give the tools out to everybody so that they will fear them less and they will be more reluctant to make regulations in the spirit of having more liberty to use the technology that they find useful. Definitely awareness and knowledge is power. And, and when you first said ignore people, like I kind of chuckled, but it really, it really is good advice to when you believe in something and when people might have opinions that aren't so nice about that, to disregard them anyway and to move forth with your vision. Yeah. One of the advantages of being, you know, they might say you're overconfident in the technology. It takes someone who is overconfident in a technology or overconfident in the ability to pull something off, to pull something off that most rational people will say can't be pulled off. And so I want people to be really ambitious and try really hard at it. And not give up. <laughs> yep. We're coming up on time a little bit, so I have just a few more questions. You may not be decided yet, but what are your next steps in terms of things you're thinking about doing after maybe a few more years in ND Lab? Definitely the first task will be pulling off free genes. The objective goal is to distribute more genes in one year than any other DNA repository. Goal one. Once achieved, I think I might get into the DNA fab business because I see a lot of inefficiencies there and they're not really getting better. And so I think I would want to probably build a company off of that idea. When you aren't in the lab, what else do you like to do for fun? I go camping and hiking quite often. So every other week when it's more sunny or every week over at Big Basin. And then I also play Minecraft. I've been working on a Minecraft computer lately, which I've gotten pretty far on. I recently got a what I call 2D Minecraft in Minecraft working, which is basically a computer screen where you have a little cursor that blinks and you can move it around the screen and place blocks or destroy blocks. Oh, that's awesome. We had a previous guest on RSC Stories that built an HPC cluster also within Minecraft. You might want to talk to him. <laughs> I would love to. Kioni, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you today. I've already had the honor of working with you on software, and I can attest that your attention to detail and your ability to manage both tasks and people is well beyond your years. I'm really excited to watch you grow and to see what problems that you decide to tackle next. Thank you.